So if you had that passage where you can see it, and you'll see straight away the very first word of the passage is another, and that reminds us that we're in the middle of something, as Graham said, that scene was set for us at the beginning of the chapter in the second verse. Perhaps you can imagine what it was like, the lake glistening in the sunshine maybe, the water peaceful and still, the ground sloping steeply upwards from the shore, curving sharply maybe around a narrow inlet. And out in the middle of the inlet, in a boat, there's a man talking. His voice comes clear and crisp across the water in the morning air and the steep banks of the inlet enhance the acoustics perfectly, and there's a crowd listening intently on the steep sides of the hill. What's he talking about? Well, the second word of our passage is the word parable, and so we're reminded that we're in the middle of a series of parables. This is now the third week that we're looking at these, and today we'll have two more short parables, and the themes continue to be the kingdom, the king, and his subjects. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, what is it like? Well, it's not a kingdom that you can find on a map. No part of this world is any more in the kingdom than any other. Jesus said elsewhere that his kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't have borders. In fact, it's within you or inside you. It's a spiritual kingdom. There are In any one of the world's 200 or so countries, you can find people who belong to this kingdom. They are the subjects and they are ruled by its king. And today in this passage, Jesus will add to that teaching that we've already had and he'll continue to use pictures from agriculture, seeds and fruit, which speak about growth and development and progress. But there is opposition. We've seen that in the last couple of weeks. There are enemies, there are obstructions in the way of its growth. We saw last time that the subjects of the kingdom are wheat and they have to live among the tares. The opposition to the kingdom isn't only located out there on the outside in an external group like the Pharisees or some other opponents of the kingdom. It's also in here and internal. And we saw that theme in the sower parable a couple of weeks ago when we thought about, can you remember, the preoccupied heart, the seed whose growth was hindered by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Well, another theme that we've been seeing is there's a difference between hearing and really hearing. All the people at one level can hear Jesus' teaching, but some of them can really hear. And the parables seem to be able to force that separation into those two groups. And that choice continues to be pressed on the listener. Are you going to just hear or are you going to really hear? And if you remember, Ian talked to us last week about parables. They're they're not only about explaining how spiritual things work using picture language, although they are partly that. But more than that, they are in some mysterious way the language of the kingdom of heaven. And to certain of those listening, to those who really hear, they speak the truth of the kingdom so that it flourishes in the heart. But to others who hear but don't understand, it seems that they can follow the illustration, but they don't apply it to themselves personally. They're not really hearing. And it seems that each person is either one or the other. You're going to end up in one of those two camps. There's no in-between, and Jesus uses the language of hearing and really hearing. So at the beginning, we have to ask ourselves, 
which group am I going to be in? Maybe today I'll hear in a way that I haven't heard before. And that leaves us with some questions. And those questions will take us into today's teaching. How does this kingdom grow when there's opposition stacked against it and when it seems so insignificant in the world? And if the kingdom is going to grow from these tiny beginnings, it's going to need an enormous power to overcome the opposition that's stacked against it. And if that opposition is located not just out there in some external uh, group or force, but also internally in my own heart, in your own heart, in the form of cares about the world and the deceitfulness of wealth and so on, then what power is going to be able to drive its growth? And so in this next section of teaching, Jesus is going to say something about the enormous power of the kingdom to grow using these two pictures, the mustard seed and the leaven. And so as we look at that power, as these two short parables reveal it, externally in the world, as the kingdom spreads outwardly and internally in the heart, as its influence spreads inside our hearts. And then we'll ask, why is it then that one believer seems to be seeing this power at work in their lives? They seem to experience resistance being overcome, and another person seems to see so little of it. They seem to see little spiritual growth from one year year to the next. They seem to be at times overcome by the opposition. So why is that? And then we'll think about the source of this power. Where is it located? Where do you get it from? And hopefully you'll see how it is that you can be one who really hears. And maybe you're someone who doesn't know this power. Maybe these things are foreign to you. Maybe you've never really heard him speak before. And you too can really hear, perhaps for the first time. And those will be our points. So let's begin with the first point. Verse 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which is indeed the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree and the birds of the air nest in its branches. That's a powerful image, a tiny seed that's only a couple of millimetres across on the one hand and a fully grown tree with branches and even birds nesting in it. And that draws on some Old Testament imagery that some readers would be familiar with the tree representing God's power and his rule, and the birds as people who've been under oppression, living in that tree, finding welcome and hospitality in its branches. It supports and nourishes life and allows it to flourish. Now it's telling us this picture about the growth of the gospel in the world. The beginnings are small, and perhaps Christianity does look small in today's world. Well, certainly its beginnings were small. Its king was born not in a palace, but in a stable. He was a leader who wandered, settling nowhere, outside all of the networks of social and political and economic power in his time. He died in weakness. His first followers were fishermen and publicans. Its first geographical starting point was a despised corner of the Roman Empire. Its first doctrines confronted those who heard them and were a stumbling block. And if ever there was a religion that was a little grain of seed at its beginning, surely this religion was the gospel. But it grew. 
And there's plenty to say about the growth of the kingdom in church history. In this scene that we're considering, there's a crowd listening to Jesus. And it turns out that not many of those crowd continue to follow him. But that's exactly what Jesus was talking about in the parable of the sower. And so the total number of followers at the time of Jesus' death was very small, but it was followed by phenomenal growth. We see that recorded in the book of Acts. Frank Morrison, in his book, Who Moved the Stone, writes about this growth in the early church. He writes about the small party of followers with the message of the resurrection that they brought to Jerusalem at Pentecost. He says, they brought it to Jerusalem and carried it into the most keenly intellectual center of Judea. And in the face of every impediment, which a brilliant and highly organized Camarilla could devise, within 20 years, the claim of these Galilean peasants had disrupted the Jewish church and impressed itself upon every town on the eastern littoral of the Mediterranean from Caesarea to Troas. In less than 50 years, it had begun to threaten the peace of the Roman Empire. When we remember what certain highly placed personages in Jerusalem would almost certainly have given to have strangled this movement at its birth, but could not, how one desperate expedient after another was adopted to silence the apostles and the church growth in Acts reminds us, of course, about this opposition and its persecution that's stacked against us. But this is the lesson of the mustard seed, and he tells us how this message of the gospel spread across the Roman Empire in the days of the early church, and all down the history of the church, there have been explosions of growth at various times and places, especially when there's serious opposition. In modern times, we might think perhaps of Korea and the growth there, or Africa, Latin America, China. That seed contains a hidden life and power, and once thrown in the earth, its growth is great and steady and continuous. In spite of opposition and persecution, violence even, it spread and increased because it comes with a power. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about this, saying the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power, and it's this power that we're looking at. Do you remember the parable of the sower? We saw a powerful contrast. On the one hand, he who received the seed on, sto on the stony place, he it is, who receives the word and immediately hears it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, and tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, and immediately he stumbles. So something is at work to threaten the kingdom life, it's tribulation or persecution arising because of the word and it makes him stumble. But in verse 23, there's another person. He receives the seed on the good ground and he it is who hears the word and understands it and it bears fruit and produces. The kingdom life will bring trouble and persecution. There will be opposition. But the parable teaches that the opposition will be overcome. But how does that power operate to extend God's kingdom when the persecution and the opposition is stacked against it? Well, we know it's the power of God and his word and as he speaks. We see this, for example, in an episode of Bible history where the temple was rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. And the way that God turns things around in that circumstance was amazing. Israel had been in exile for decades 
The time has come in God's plan for them to be restored to the promised land. But how can this happen? No doubt that was the question in many minds. How can this mustard seed of broken walls and debris and ruin ever be otherwise? But God is sovereign over emperor's wills. And the Bible tells us how God acted. And out of the blue, God moves the heart of a king called Cyrus to pay attention to a little mustard seed people called Jews to send them off to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. Who could have dreamed? Yet when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And this remains true even if that opposition should result in death. Now death is a mustard seed for sure. Revelation chapter 2 says this, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Even death cannot separate us from God's love. And there's a promise in God's word that this kingdom power will triumph and that the mustard seed will become a tree. And whether it's the mustard seed of open air preaching in a a noisy, busy street full of buskers and shoppers that perhaps doesn't look that powerful to you, whether it's knocking on someone's door in the evening to give them a card with the details of the church services on it and perhaps an invitation to come. Yes, mustard seeds indeed, but the lesson of the mustard seed that we see is that even in persecution and opposition and even in death, the kingdom has a power that will be at work because of God's sovereign grace and his word. But there's another kind of opposition to the kingdom of heaven, a different threat to its growth and life. And here we see this in the second parable, another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And here we see a picture of the kingdom advancing inside the believer's heart. It enters the heart as it's implanted from outside and as hearers hear the word. And it exerts its influence through the heart as the lordship of this king presses into all the different faculties of the heart. And as the leaven works through the dough, it doesn't replace the dough, it transforms it as the kingdom life and power gets to work. And here we're talking about a different kind of opposition, an opposition that's internal as the sins of the heart resist the growth of the kingdom. And there are any number of ways where the leaven needs to exert its influence in our hearts. The picture that Jesus draws has a large amount of dough and a small amount of leaven or yeast. And so we get this image of the leaven working its way through the dough over a period of time. And so we could ask, what sinful states of the human heart will resist the influence of the leaven that the leaven can transform? Well, there are many areas we could look at. But again, going back to the parable of the sower, we saw a couple of things, didn't we? that demonstrate how the kingdom life has power to penetrate and transform the dough. Think, for example, about the deceitfulness of wealth 
For sure, that's one thing that opposes the growth of the kingdom in our hearts. Well, how will the leaven of the kingdom transform the deceitfulness of wealth? You see, wealth is dangerous. Not wealth itself, but the craving and the desiring for more that goes with it. It can easily deceive us. And, it, and it's, it's like handling a live wire that can electrocute That's the gist of Paul's words to Timothy that he writes in the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 6. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And so back to our question, will the leaven of the kingdom life have the power to transform this particular aspect of the dough, the deceitfulness of wealth? Well, the parable says, yes, it will, but how will this work? Another passage in 1 Timothy, uh, in Hebrew, sorry, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that's a promise that comes in God's word. And can you see what the kingdom power is doing? It's transforming covetousness into consentment, into contentment with the power of God's word. And this contentment that God's word promises doesn't collapse when God ordains that we have much or little. And it's no small thing to learn it, but it's there in God's word and it's promised. And the power of the leaven to spread is the power to generate this contentment in the life of a believer. The sower parable also mentions the cares of the world. And here we could remember perhaps that the cares of the world are a vast array of other threats to the kingdom life, other ways that its growth is resisted in our hearts. And cares of the world give rise to many of the sinful states and attitudes that we know. And if there's power in the leaven to overcome these cares, Think how productive that would be in our Christian lives. Its influence would extend far into our hearts. For example, care and concern about money can give rise to coveting and greed and hoarding and stealing, as we've just heard. Care about succeeding at some task can make you irritable and abrupt and surly. Care about your relationships can make you withdrawn and indifferent and uncaring, perhaps. So surely we're concerned that the leavening influence of the kingdom is allowed to be at work as these cares of the world press on us. And here again, we ask, what what influence will it have? How will these cares of the world be resisted in our lives? And again, we point to Jesus and his word and something that he says earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter six, Jesus himself said, but first, Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And that all these things in that passage refers to those things that we might be worried about. Your life, what you'll eat, what you will drink, your body, what you'll put on, your clothes. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. And so we're thinking about the power of the kingdom and Jesus speaks to the hearer or the reader and he's saying, your heavenly father will supply these things. That is a promise. And as we've looked at the power, the power of the leaven to spread through the dough, the power of the kingdom to spread in a believer's heart, 
This is mediated through the promises that the Word of God gives us. And so the picture here is yeast having an influence in the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like those two pictures that Jesus says. There's a power at work in the world and there's a power at work in the heart. But how does it work? Here are two believers and one is barely keeping going, battling against these things, battling against the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. But here's another who's producing fruit 30, 60 and 100 fold. Why is it that the power of the kingdom is so active in one and not in the other? And if you're a believer and you're looking at the mustard seeds in your life and you're asking, how can I see growth in the world around me? Is this something that just happens to me and I just wait for it? How can, how can, I, how can I have that power be at work in me and around me? And if, you're, if you've got that uh, leavening influence in, your, in, in the dough of your heart and you're asking, how can I extend that further into my heart? How can I get it to transform the deceitfulness of wealth and the cares of the world? Jesus gives us part of the answer to that question in the last two verses. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Jesus is quoting words from Psalm 78. We read it, uh, Graham read it at the beginning. It begins, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So there's something here that we're to listen to. And we know already from Matthew 13 that there are two ways to listen. Some are just listening. Some are really listening. And those that are really listening, those who have ears to hear, as Jesus said, are drawn to the king and the kingdom while others are confirmed in their rejection. But what parable is Psalm 78 teaching? Well, it's telling us something very important about the life of the kingdom. It's a, it's a long psalm and it, it goes through the, de the dealings of God with his people. And that history is supposed to be retold by one generation to the next. The parable itself, if you like, runs from verse 9, that's the bit we didn't read, and it covers with repetitions and flashbacks the whole period of Israel's history from slavery in Egypt and the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea, wanderings in the wilderness, the complaining, the provision of water and food, and on into the promised land. Well, what does the parable teach? Or the What's its message? Well, in reviewing the history, it teaches that God carried out his plan and revealed his marvellous attributes. That was in the passage that we read in verses 4 and 5. His strength, his wonderful works, his testimony, his law. And that was something God's people were to know and that they were to teach future generations. They were to dwell on his unfailing and forgiving love. And the psalm's main lesson is that in spite of all this, they did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law, verse 17 of that psalm, but they sinned even more against him 
by, regal, by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. This is tragic. God had done miracles for them, but they'd forgotten. He sent them food to the full, but they remained unsatisfied. And so in the language of the parables, the mustard seed did not grow into a tree. The, the leaven did not work its leavening influence in the dough of their hearts. And so the question for us is, what did they miss that I can learn from? Why did that kingdom power work so poorly in their lives? Why didn't they bear fruit 160 or, or 30 fold? Why didn't they really hear? Why didn't the kingdom power operate more in their lives? Look again at Psalm 78 if you can see it. Verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his salvation. Verse 32, in spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Verse 37, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. They were, verse 8, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. That question again, what did they miss? What did they lack? Why didn't they bear more fruit? Why didn't they really hear? Answer, they lacked faith. They didn't believe. That's what they missed. That was the cause of their trouble. They were overwhelmed by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth and so on. And their hearts were unreceptive to the seed of God's word. And it didn't prove fruitful because of faith. Faith is the instrument of the heart that connects the hearer, the one who really hears, to the life-sustaining power of the kingdom. Faith is the thing that enables one to look at the mustard seed and to see what it will be in the future. And it works by hearing and believing God's promises. And so when circumstances are small, and perhaps only a tiny number of believers is meeting in a church, faith looks at that situation and remembers Jesus' promise, I will build my church. Or if the deceitfulness of wealth threatens the kingdom life, faith looks at a promise like Hebrews 13, 5, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The one who believes this promise, the one who has faith, will be empowered to resist. Or when the heart asks, as the people did in Psalm 78 verse 19, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Faith will answer those questions with an abundant yes, of course he can. Faith looks to promises such as Matthew 6, 31. Therefore do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And these and many other, many others are the promises where faith looks to sustain the kingdom power. And so that's the third point. The kingdom power is sustained by faith. But there's a last lesson in Psalm 78. And here we ask, what exactly is this faith? What does it mean to believe? Psalm, 70, Psalm 78 reminds us that faith has an object. It's faith in something. When you have faith, you're trusting in someone. You're believing what someone has said. You're valuing someone. You're treating their words differently. Let me give you an example. I could read or hear uh, every single week about a new way of doing something in work 
something that will make things go better, smoother, faster, safer, better for the patient, and so on. And every week there are talks and journals uh, filled with all that kind of stuff. But if I have a difficult problem in work, if I want help to know what's the best way to approach something challenging, I have a particular person that I will go and ask. Now, I've got 30 or so colleagues, each of whom could give me an opinion about that problem, but I've got one person that I know I'm going to ask, that one person I want to speak to about this, and what he says to me, I will treat completely differently to what other people say. If he recommends something to me, even if that's difficult or inconvenient or challenging, then I will let his thinking contradict mine because I value what he says above other advisors and that's how faith works. I've got a million reasons to trust this person because I know him, I know his character, I know his record, I know his history, I know his reputation. He's got a personal commitment to me and my development ever, start, ever since I started uh, doing that job. There's a personal relationship there, and he's concerned about me, he's taken time to teach me, and what I'm describing in my relationship with him is faith. I trust him, I take what he says seriously, I defer to him and I hear what he says in a different way to the way that I hear everybody else because of that. Other people I just hear, him I really hear. And so the people in Psalm 78 were supposed to know those things that Graham read, the praises of the Lord, his strength, his wonderful works, and what he has done, the testimony that he established and the law that he appointed. Faith's object is, of course, God himself. And they failed despite having a perfectly good record of his ways and deeds. What went wrong? Well, that's what we've seen. Matthew uses those words, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. There's hearing and there's really hearing. But there's another lesson in Psalm 78. After this long review of the, the faithlessness of Israel, what happened? Did God leave them to their own devices and forget about them? No, God did something decisive. Towards the end of the psalm in verse 69, suddenly it seems as if from nowhere the Lord awoke as from sleep, as the psalm has it. And what does God do? He makes a choice. He chose a people. Verse 70, he chose David, his servant. Verse 70 reads, and took him from the sheepfolds. This is David from following the ewes that had young. He brought them to shepherd Jacob and his people and Israel, his inheritance. I've talked about faith in the God who promises as being the key to seeing the tree in the mustard seed, as being the key to having the leaven spread through the dough, as being the thing that the people of Psalm 78 lacked that led to their rebellion and its consequences. And now here is one who's going to shepherd them according to the integrity of his heart, the psalm has it, and who will guide them by the skillfulness of his hands. Here is one in whom they can see the promises being fulfilled. Here is one in whom they can have confidence, one they can value, one who himself in his person reflects the worth and beauty of the God whom the people have rejected. You see, Jesus himself and his words 
don't just announce the kingdom of heaven. He's not just the messenger of the kingdom. He is the king and his arrival on earth and his words and his deeds as people hear them and as they have faith in him, that kingdom will, will spread. And it's, as we said, it's not a physical thing or a place. As he teaches and people hear, that's the way his kingdom makes, it the way in, makes its way into the world. And it's the way that it grows. He is faith's great object. Faith is that in the heart which trusts him. And the way that faith holds on to him is that it hears his promises, especially his promise to forgive our sins, as Ben said in the kids' talk, especially his promises to make us new people and to transform us into his likeness. Not just hears, really hears. And to really hear takes, means to take hold of these promises and to let them bear the weight of life, to act as if they're true, because they are, knowing that for sure the mustard seed of opposition will be overcome by the tree that faith can picture, to not be deceived by, the, by riches, by letting the leaven of contentment work its way into the deceit-prone heart, by believing his promises of provision, not to be overcome by worldly cares, but to let the leaven of calm serenity penetrate the heart, how? By believing his promises. And Psalm 78 points to David because David fulfilled many of those promises and the people could see in David that God remained true to his word and that they could and should trust him and value him and submit to him. But Matthew uses Psalm 78 to point to David's greater son, Jesus himself, who gives us even more confidence than David because he did what David could not do. His heart of integrity was pierced for those he chose. The hands by which David skillfully guided, in Jesus' case, were pierced, pierced with nails. He endured the ultimate persecution, the ultimate opposition, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of it. He came to humanity and he supplies the life-giving, nourishing leaven for our hearts as he empowers us with his kingdom life in power, his, own, his very own life and power, which he died that we could have. What kind of man is this that died in agony? He who had done no wrong was crucified for me. What kind of man is this who laid aside his throne that I may know the love of God? What kind of man is this? Well, that takes us back to where we started. The man on a boat, his voice coming across the water to the hillside, and you're in the crowd, and I'm in the crowd, and we have his words in front of us. So I ask you again, are you listening? Do you really hear him? You have his word. You can hear him at any time. If you're a believer and you want to see more of your heart leavened by his kingdom life, go to his word, listen to him, believe his promises. If you're not in his kingdom, then you have an opportunity now to hear his words and believe him maybe for the first time. Have faith in him. Come into the kingdom and let him be your king. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh yes, you can believe his promises. If he says he will do something, he means he will do it. Well, what kind of love is that?